as we mentioned in our last study, John chapter 21 is likely an appendix added on at a later date by John after he completed the narrative, but before circulation, publication. John's intention in adding this final chapter was likely to address really two things. First, a rumor that had developed amongst the church during that time that John, that Jesus had predicted John wouldn't die before he returned, that John would never taste death, that the return of Jesus would happen before then. John wants to clear that up. The other reason John writes is likely to eulogize his dear friend, Peter, who had likely, historically, just been martyred. John chapter 21, we'll dive right in with verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, the Sea of Tiberias, you're already familiar with it. This is the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. The region, the Galilean region, the Sea of Galilee, this is just the Roman title, Sea of Tiberias. John continuing, and in this way, Jesus showed himself. That's an interesting turn of phrase. The, the Greek word here for showed uh, doesn't mean that Jesus was like, hey, I'm here, or like revealed himself, but instead it's more if he manifested. He manifested something that was hidden, making it now seen. It's an interesting word. It's to take something hidden and make it known. Thus, Jesus, he showed himself, or he's revealing something about himself, not just his presence. Well, we're told, John continuing, that Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, this is James and our author, John, and two others, we don't have their names, of Jesus' disciples. They're all together. And Simon Peter <clears throat> said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. So they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. John begins this chapter writing after these things, which establishes for us a general timeline for this event, being roughly two weeks or so following the resurrection of Jesus. From this point, the disciples will soon journey back to Jerusalem for another feast, the Feast of Pentecost. The scene itself presents for us seven disciples hanging out at the Sea of Galilee when Peter gets the itch to fish, which really shouldn't be a surprise. Peter, James, John, they'd all been fishermen by trade before they had left all behind, their businesses included, to be disciples or followers of Jesus. Fishermen near water is going to fish. Now, John doesn't explain why these men are in Galilee to begin with. But keep in mind that on at least two separate occasions, recorded in both Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16, Jesus, the post-resurrected Jesus, had instructed his disciples, again, two occasions, to leave Jerusalem and go to the Galilee, and he gave this promise that they should go to a particular mountain and he would appear to them. No doubt they're now in Galilee, around the Sea of Tiberias, for this exact reason. They're being obedient. While theories abound as to the motivation behind Peter making this decision to go fishing, most notably a theory that Peter's 
kick-starting the old business, returning to a former occupation. I believe the most simplistic explanation for what motivated Peter is probably the most accurate. Peter and the boys go fishing because like most men around a body of water, they enjoyed fishing. Jesus said, go to Galilee, wait for me, particular mountain. So they're there twiddling their thumbs, and the water looked enticing. They still had some boats, and they're like, let's go drop a lure. They go fishing. As John recalls this particular evening, he remembers how these seven men, they fish all night long. It had been some time since they had fished. And John remembers how they caught nothing. Well, verse 4, but when morning had now come, no question, been a long frustrating night on the sea. John says that Jesus stood on the shore. Yet, he adds, the disciples did not know, or more accurately, they could not see that it was Jesus. They're too far away. Then Jesus said to them, so get the scene in your mind. They're, they're rowing their way in. There's Jesus on the shore. They can't see it's Jesus, but he yells out from the shore, children. And this it's a unique phrase, this, this word children in the, in the Greek. It's akin to saying like lads or boys. Have you any food or literally meat? Have you caught anything? So they answered him, no. I'm sure it was a no filled with frustration. A little bit of embarrassment even. Well, Jesus said to them, and again, they don't know it's Jesus. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast. I mean, I mean, really, at this point, what do they have to lose? But then John recalls, now they were not able to draw it in, the nets, because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and, and again, this is John, our author, he turns to Peter, and he says, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it. And John's replaying the scene, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples, and again for reference, this would include John, they came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, and that's about 300 feet, dragging the net with the fish. Now many Bible commentators love to take this particular story and draw from it all kinds of interesting and, and really, for the most part, beautiful applications. Let me give you one example. One pastor that I greatly respect, listen to all the time, he taught on this passage that when Jesus commanded that they cast the net on the right side of the boat, after fishing all night, catching nothing, that Jesus was intentionally asking these experienced professional fishermen to do something in faith that made absolutely no sense at all. The theory is it such a great yield was the reward for a willingness to trust and obey Jesus. The application being that if you and I also trust and obey, even when Jesus' instructions to us make no sense, no logical sense, that Jesus will in turn perform a work that transcends anything we could ever imagine. It is beautiful, isn't it? It sounds nice. It's generally speaking true. I mean, I'm re you recall Noah? Build a boat. What's a boat? Well, it's going to rain a lot. Well, what's rain? 
well, there'll be a flood. Yet still, you're still losing me, God. Just obey. And he and his family were saved from a great flood. There are times where God asks us to do something that for, on the surface just seems crazy. And we have to trust. We have to obey. That's a, that's, it's, a, it's a generally a true idea. The problem, though, with this particular presentation is that it completely overlooks one key reality of our story, something John makes clear. These men were obeying a man who was yelling at them from the shore they did not know was actually Jesus. Like, like there's no evidence that these men were trusting Jesus when they cast their nets to the right side of the boat because they didn't know it was Jesus. You see, these men, they're not acting in faith. Instead, these seven disciples, they're just tired of fishing all night without a catch, and they figured there's no harm in trying something different. I mean, maybe, for all they knew, the guy on the shore could see a school of fish on the right side of the boat. So what's the point of the story? First, while the disciples are unaware that it's actually Jesus speaking to them from the shore. You and I, we know it's Jesus. John has made that clear. So if you want to draw a practical application from the text, look no further than this point. Not only is Jesus interested in every aspect of your life, but sometimes Jesus is active when you're oblivious. You see, these men came to know Jesus was at work. When? In the moment? Hmm. After the fact. After the miracle. Again, I don't want to hyper-spiritualize this point where you try to see Jesus at work in every minute aspect of your everyday life. I've seen that. It's maddening and frustrating. That said, the truth is more often than not, you'll come to know Jesus was at work in a powerful way while you were oblivious when you get to look back at events with the benefit of hindsight. You see, there should be great encouragement, friend, to know that Jesus not only cares about your life, even when you're out fishing, but he's working his will through various events, even when you're not aware. I mean, isn't that true? Think about your own life, your own story. Looking back over things that you, in the moment, you, you thought God was as far from it as possible. And yet you can see that it was divine. It was orchestrated. Jesus was at work, even through terrible things. You can now look back and say, oh man, in the moment I thought you were so far from me when you were on shore directing the movements. You know, the second reason that Jesus manifests himself at this particular time and why the story plays out the way that it does really centers upon Simon Peter. Peter's kind of the point. And he's undeniably, from the verses that we read, the main character of the story, isn't he? Not only was it Peter's idea to go fishing in the first place, but when it dawns on John, the man on shore is Jesus. Peter, he's so moved, he can't wait for the boat to get to the shore. Again, John, an, an older man, 
recalling this scene, he remembers, when it dawns on them, it's Jesus. He remembers how, how Peter put on his outer garment. Again, he, he writes, because he had removed it. The King James Version says that, that Peter was naked, which kind of creates an entirely different scene. The original Greek word, though, indicates that he was probably clad, like most fishermen in the day, in his underwear. So what's he doing? He's putting clothes back on. But once he's covered himself, what does he do? He plunged into the sea. I love the way John writes this. The, the word plunged here, it literally means to throw or cast a thing without any care where it falls. As I play the scene out, you know, Peter, it's Jesus. He puts on his clothes and then right into the water, like wasn't paying attention, didn't care where he was, unconcerned with how deep it was, how far he had to go. He's swimming in his clothes. Peter, he connects the dots in his mind. And then with like a reckless abandonment, and I should also point out with no care for the fish, he puts on his clothes, he throws caution to the wind, and more importantly, himself off the boat into the water. He plunged into the sea so he could get to shore as fast as he could to see Jesus. Before we continue, I want to provide a little more context as to why this story featuring Peter is so interesting and why it's really important and really in some degree why it explains like it explains why Peter acts the way that he does. Pertaining to the Gospel of John, think about it. We've gone through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You know the only specific reference to Peter following the darkest moment in his life when he had denied Jesus three times, cussing out a little girl around a fire, and then the subsequent brokenness that results. The only other mention from that moment in John's Gospel of Peter is this one moment he and John rush to the garden to inspect an empty tomb along with Mary Magdalene. It's the only mention of him. That's the end of the story in John's Gospel of Peter. Total failure, curiosity, done. Beyond that, the only other detail of Peter post-denial provided in any of the other Gospels is a vague reference that Jesus appeared to Peter privately. We find that in Luke chapter 24, verse 34. My point is that apart from John 21, we would have no idea how Peter goes from a broken man to an emboldened man in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, it would really read weird. You'd be reading through John, the final of the Gospels. You see Peter totally blow it. Curiosity at the tomb. He's gone. And then you get to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit gets poured out. And Peter stands up in boldness. And you're like, who is this dude? It's got to be a different guy. A different Peter. See, John 21 gives us the, the complete story. It fills in the gaps. There's no question John's intention, Jesus' intention, for acting in this particular fashion. The reason that John adds it to the official record is that Jesus is doing something important in Peter's life. A work of restoration. That said, to accomplish that task of restoration, taking a man who had failed and preparing him to be useful, Jesus knew that he had to take Peter 
back to the beginning. It's the whole point of the story. You see, for Peter to be useful for the Lord, Peter needed to remember why he had made the decision to follow Jesus in the first place. It's the whole point of the story, the whole point of the scene. As a matter of fact, let me read for you Peter's first encounter with Jesus. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. We're told that so it was as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God. This is very early in his ministry. As Jesus stood by the lake of Gennesaret, another word for the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two boats by the lake. The fishermen had gone from them, were washing their nets. So Jesus got into one of the boats. This boat happened to be Simon's. And he asked him to put out a little from land. And Jesus sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. So the scene, the place is packed. Jesus is trying to get a vantage point a little distance. He gets in a boat, says, Peter, hey, I'm commandeering your boat. Can you push out a little bit? Well, we're told after he had stopped speaking that Jesus then turns to Simon. He says, hey, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. Sound familiar? Nevertheless, it's your word. I'll let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their par partners, that being James and John, by the way, and another boat to come and help. And they came, they filled both boats, so much so it began to sink. And Peter, when he saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, and this is what he said. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And they said to Simon, Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. The last time they were in a boat was that scene. Now fast forward to John 21. As you can imagine, the similar occurrence here recorded in both places. This scene in John 21, it immediately, instantly, when the dots connect for Peter, it hearkened his thoughts back to this initial encounter with the Lord. Peter remembered begrudgingly taking the Lord into the water, into the boat, arguing with him when he was commanded to let down the nets. As Peter, on this boat, in the Sea of Galilee, as he looks down into the water and he sees an incredible haul of fish, he remembered the last time he had witnessed such a catch. It had been with Jesus. It's my opinion that it's in this moment Peter remembers why he originally decided to forsake all and follow Jesus in the first place. What had it been that caused Peter to gravitate towards Jesus. What was the connection? Well, again, in Luke, it had been the amazing grace of Jesus manifesting itself in the presence of his obvious inadequacy. Peter, in the moment, what does he say? He says, you got to go away. Depart from me. Why? I am a sinful man. And he was correct in that matter. And yet Jesus, even agreeing, he still chose and called him anyway. 
I know you're a sinful man. Come follow me. Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. You know, the entire reason that Jesus waited to reveal himself in Galilee until Peter and the boys were headed back to shore after an unproductive night fishing on the sea, I believe was to set this scene whereby Peter would remember something very important he had forgotten. A point that he had forgotten that led to his failure. And that was the fact that Jesus had called him knowing he was an unworthy sinner. He had forgotten that. It's as though Jesus had said, Peter, I knew who you were when I called you. Well, we read in verse 9, then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. I know this is kind of a strange observation and it's kind of how my brain works, but... You read that and you think, where did Jesus get the fish and the bread? <laughs> it wasn't from the boat. The boat wasn't, he was already cooking it. Did he stop by the, the quick trip? Did he take some of the stones and just bread and fish? Did he make the fire or just say fire? You know, I don't know. We don't have an answer for it. One of the questions I have in heaven Before we continue, though, I do want to bring your attention to a detail here about this scene, a scene that Jesus sets up on the shore that you probably missed. But I promise you, as Peter, fully clothed and soaking wet, as he walked onto the shore from the sea, I promise you he noticed it immediately. In the Greek, the word translated fire of coals, <laughs> it's found in only one other passage, only one other place. You want to take a guess? Back in John 18, verse 18, we read how just outside the chief priest's home, where Jesus is being illegally tried, the servants and officers made a fire of coals. They stood there. It was cold. They warned themselves, and Peter stood with them and warned himself also. If you recall, it would then be around this very fire of coals that Peter would deny Jesus for a third time, hear a rooster crow, turn and make eye contact with Jesus. It would crush him. I can only imagine coming out of the water to see such a fire of coals took him to a place he would have rather forgotten. When Peter's walk with Jesus began, he knew that he was unworthy. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he was undeserving. So much so he told Jesus, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And yet, sad to say, the longer Peter walked with the Lord, the more and more he lost sight of that critical reality. I mean, don't forget this vital point. When Peter ultimately denied the Lord three times, Jesus learned nothing new about Peter he didn't already know. I'm going to say that again. Don't miss that. When Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus learned nothing new about Peter he didn't already know. Jesus knew Peter would fail. So much so, just hours before, he predicted it would happen. 
when Peter was adamant it wouldn't. You see, the reason that Peter ends up so crushed by his failure is that he ends up being reminded of something he'd forgotten. Peter was still a sinful man. Peter was still unworthy of God's grace. Tragically, his pride had blinded him to these realities. But failure brought them to light. You know, the difficult truth is Jesus often allows failure to remind us how much we need his grace. Don't forget the passage that God resists whom? The broken? The down and outer? The outcast? No, he resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Peter was filled with pride. That led him to failure. But it led him to failure to remind him that Jesus knew anyway. It was all right. You know, Christian, this is a point you dare never forget. For the weight of condemnation and the moment of failure does not arise because Jesus forgot who you were. Oh my goodness, you did what? I'm shocked. I'd put so much into you. 